Welcome to Life to the Full, a message to Christians. This is a podcast about the abundant life that God promises in Scripture. We want to inspire those who are frustrated with themselves and their communities to live a transformed life that will impact the world. Our primary purpose is to be a platform that will impact the world through conversation. We want to invite others to connect and unite in curiosity, vulnerability, and responsibility. A transformed life is about growth, learning, and evolving. A transformed life leads to transformed communities, and transformed communities impact the world. One conversation at a time. Welcome to Life to the Full, a message to Christians, your host, The Zito. (laughs) Jimmy was doing some Tony Robbins jumps. I wish I would have gotten faster. I'm putting him on the screen. Oh, yeah. Uh, We're excited. This is uh, official class number one. Last week was class number zero. If you're just tuning in, whether in Facebook or YouTube, please know that this is a podcast. We are also in iTunes, and we will be put linking the that link in the comments very shortly. So life to the full podcast. But what is cooking, Jimmy? What are you doing these the rest of the nine weeks for this summer? Rest of the nine weeks, tonight is part one of a two-part introduction to Rabbi Shaul, otherwise known as the Apostle Paul. And then after that, after this week and the following week, we'll do some more stuff on Paul. We're going to dive right in. We're going to do a deep dive into Ephesians. We're going to spend the rest of the summer on the book of Ephesians, pretty much going chapter by chapter every week. And then we'll have one final week to kind of close us off and kind of survey the landscape, see where we've been, and kind of look forward ahead into the future. Yes. And these are live classes that we're uh, posting on Facebook and on YouTube every Sunday. So this is Sundays, 6.30 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, And we have uh, live guests with us. So we're going to start pulling, bringing them in by order. We're going to start with... I don't know why I want to call you Ready Dave, even though you're known as David, but Ready David, that's going to be your nickname. Where is he? Ready David? Hello. Nice. Uh, Ready David. Ready. <laughs> yes. We, yes. Awesome. And he is joining us from Staten Island, correct, though? Yep. Staten Island, New York. Awesome. The of the parks. Hey, and then we have our friend Andre all the way from Ohio. Hey. Hey, what's up, guys? What's up? What's up, Andre? Andre the Giant. Andre, are you you holding coffee in that picture? Yeah, that is coffee. I went to to Dunkin' Donuts that day. So, (laughs) yeah. Love it, love it. That's like my favorite coffee coffee place. Okay, okay, cool, cool. That's awesome. Well, welcome, Andre. And then we have, all the way from Wyoming, we have... Hello! Dwight Harvin! Hey, the man, the myth, the legend, Dwight Harvin. The legend, yes. (laughs) Wonderful Wyoming. (laughs) Wyoming. 
That is welcome. It's so good to see you, even though you're a little you're little on the screen. I'm giving you a hug. We haven't talked in a while. Yeah, I felt that. <laughs> I felt that. All right, honey, I'm gonna pull up your screen and let you take over from here. Have fun, everyone. I'll be out when you see my face. There's most likely of any comments, whether on Facebook or YouTube, and I'll let you know. Cool. It's either a comment or I'm in trouble for some reason. <laughs> it's the only reason, only two reasons. All right. So welcome guys again to the summer of scripture uh, or a summer of Paul. We're going through our thing here with Paul, as we just talked about with Patty. Uh, you know, some things to expect. Again, we have these summer seminars summer seminars, these Sunday seminars, which I'm excited about. We have our summer reading, looking forward to see if anyone did the reading, uh, and uh, some scripture journaling, which we have not really gotten to yet. Uh, so we'll, we already kind of did this stuff, gave you guys a lay of the land, everything that's going to be going on. Uh, if you did the reading, you would have read an introduction to Paul, a biography, and chapters one through four. We're going to talk about some of that stuff today, pull some stuff out, and have a nice, cool discussion about it. Uh, I'm excited about that. I love that book. Uh, if you haven't gotten it yet, get your scripture journal. They are just fun to have. They are single books of the Bible uh, in literary style, nice heavy pages that you can write on without going through it. And for every page of scripture, you get an additional page of text. So it's really cool. And it comes in the illuminated beautiful, where they have some great artwork, uh, which I feel like is almost too nice to me for me and my handwriting. I would go for the black one if it was me, because you know my, I don't feel like my handwriting will destroy it. Uh, again, don't forget, consider supporting us on Patreon. Help us to make more of these awesome things happen. Uh, we have a Patreon page. Not much is on it yet, but we uh, appreciate all the support. So let's get into it. Let's get into our introduction to Paul. I love this picture of him. Uh, I believe it's from a mosaic in an Eastern Orthodox church uh, from way back, back in the day when they were first making these churches. And you can kind of just see him. You know, it's nice to put a face to a name when you get to know someone. We obviously have no idea what he looked like. There was no cell phone camera footage or other things to let us know what he looked like. But we are going to get into Paul today. I'm excited about getting into Paul. Uh, but let's do a quiz first. I have like a love-hate relationship with quizzes. Um, I do love quizzes. Every now and then I'll go to the bookstore and I'll get a test prep book and I'll, I'll go through the tests in this test prep book just to see if I still have it. I'll kind of give myself an SAT score. I haven't done it in a while. We're gonna do a quick quiz and then we're gonna, we're gonna dive right in. So let's see, you don't have to share your answers. Okay, we're going to just take a second to reflect, and then we're going to go through all the answers. Question number one. When did Paul have his name changed from Saul to Paul by God? So you can think about that one. When did Saul have his name changed by God from Saul to Paul? Okay, number two. Which gospel did Paul rely the most heavily on when constructing his books? Okay, which one? Number three, according to the Bible, how was Paul martyred? How was Paul killed? 
Number four, what laws did Paul continue to follow after he converted to Christianity? What laws did Paul continue to follow after he converted to Christianity? Today, okay, so that's good. Those are our questions. So let's let's answer them real quick. Number one, when did Paul have his name changed from Saul to Paul by God? The quick answer is it never happened. <laughs> this is kind of like a trick question quiz. Um, when I was doing this research for this class, uh, I was looking for a fun quiz to do, and I was I was shocked by how many people uh, you know thought that he had his name changed by God on on the road to Emmaus when he, he was blind, not Emmaus when he was struck blind by God. All right, number two, which gospel did Paul rely the most on when constructing his books? Okay, depending on what you wrote down, the quick answer is he didn't use any gospel because the gospels hadn't been written yet. In the writings of Paul, we have the earliest Christian writings that we know of. The third question, according to the Bible, how was Paul martyred? Okay. We actually don't find that in the Bible. We find that in church tradition. That's something else that I found very interesting as, as I was researching this class. A lot of people were you know, saying, oh, according, according to the Bible. No, it's according to tradition, church tradition, that we know that Paul was martyred. But we don't learn that from the Bible. The last question, what laws did Paul continue to follow after he converted to Christianity? Short answer, did not convert to Christianity. He remained a Jew. He was a Jew who followed Jesus. So he most likely was still Torah observant. So that was our quick quiz. Uh, don't worry. There's no grades. We just want to see where everyone is. Uh, it's kind of for your own knowledge. Okay, where, where am I on this journey? Uh, some of you guys listening, either live in the class or out there, probably got them all right. And if you didn't, that's okay. That's why we're doing this. The first thing we're going to do uh, with Paul. He's a very mysterious figure. Uh, he kind of comes comes in right into the New Testament. Uh, and a lot of times it's just a good idea to just back up and just take a 30,000 view look of, of Paul and his, and his life. So we're going to take the 30,000 foot view. We're going to go in. We're going to look at the story thus far that Paul would have found himself coming into. If you know me, if you've been to any one of my talks before, I always love to do this. I think, you know, there's we have to get into practice of just reciting a story and reminding ourselves of where we are in the story. So, of course, the first is Genesis, right? Genesis 1 to 11. And I can make a case that, you know, everything that you need to know about the Bible kind of goes back to Genesis 1 through 11. So we have basically a main plot opening up. So I put it there, and I'm also going to be putting it down here. So Genesis 1 to 11, you have creation. God creates a universe, right? Or he orders it. He orders everything. He puts things into its proper places. He creates a world. He creates these spaces. And then he fills it with living creatures, and he fills it with people. You have the garden, right? And then from the garden, very quickly, you have the fall, right? Right away, we're introduced to the problem of the whole story, and the problem is death, right? 
We were made to be a certain way. Adam and Eve were made to do something, to partner and rule and reign with God. And things went horribly wrong, right? And they lost that and they were exiled from the garden or the fall. And then we get Cain and Abel, right? After they get out of the garden, things start getting worse and worse. We have the first murder, right? Then we have the generation from Adam to Noah, the generation of the flood. And things get worse and worse. And then the flood happens. God's grieved that he made man, right? So he decides to cleanse the earth and he brings the flood. But he finds favor in Noah and he saves Noah and his family in the ark. Uh, And so then after the flood, Noah gets out of the boat. He gets out of the ark. And then what does he do? He sets up an altar. He makes a sacrifice to God, right? And God is pleased by this. And even though he knows that the inclination of man's heart will always be evil all the time, he makes a covenant with Noah. This is the first covenant. Okay, it's in red. Uh, He makes the first covenant. Noah doesn't really have to do anything with this, but be fruitful and multiply. But God makes a covenant that he'll never again uh, bring up the destruction of all flesh uh, like he did before. And then we have the table of nations and the tower of Babylon. So this introduces the main plot of our biblical story, right? The problem is death, right? Death from the garden, right? Death is introduced from the fall of men. We didn't listen to God. They didn't listen to God's commands. Uh, and it gets worse and worse and worse until you get the flood. And it keeps getting worse even with the tower of Babel or Babylon. And God has to scatter the people over the face of the earth. He confuses everyone's languages. So that's the main plot. And then we get a nice little subplot. Okay, we see, but really it's a subplot, but it's also like the main plot. We're not really going to get back to the, uh, the beginning, the main plot, if you will, until much, much later. So then we have the Torah, right? We have <clears throat> a covenant with Abraham. So you can see kind of the covenants in red. God makes covenant with Abraham, promises to him to be a great people. Uh, you have Isaac, you have Jacob, Israel, Jacob who becomes Israel. Joseph descends into Egypt, sold into slavery by his brothers. Uh, the rest of the family comes down because of a famine, right? Joseph, you know, remarks that, you know, this is the remnant. God is saving the people through him, all this great stuff. Uh, but then some time passes in Egypt. There's another Pharaoh who doesn't remember Joseph and all the great, amazing things he does. And then we get Moses and we get the Exodus and we get the people of God leaving Egypt until they come to Mount Sinai. And then we get another covenant, right? So we get a covenant there. They become a people at Mount Sinai. And then God gives them instructions to build the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, right? It's almost like a garden-like space decorated with, you know, things that remind you of a garden, a place where people can meet with God, like a garden. Uh, God's spirit fills this tabernacle. So where they can't, they can't get in. They can't get in. They actually have to offer sacrifices, and they have to offer sacrifices and they have to do things to be able to cleanse the temple so they can deal with their sin. So they actually can get into the temple once God's spirit fills it. And then you have the desert wanderings, right? And then, oh, that's good. Desert wanderings. And that pretty much brings us to the entire Torah. We just summarized it. So we're flying through lots of the Bible here, but this is good to remember. 
<clears throat> they were wandering the desert. It's almost like a type of exile, if you think about it, because they weren't able to go into the land God promised, right? Because of their disobedience. They didn't trust God. They failed the test. Just like Adam and Eve did, um, they failed the test as well. So they have to wait. And then we get the book of Joshua, right? We get the Nevi'im and Ketuvim. We get the prophets and we get the writings. We get the conquest of Canaan. <clears throat> we get the conquest of Canaan in the book of Joshua. Once they have the land, we get the book of Judges, right? Where they, they forgot all about God. Uh, they forgot all about God. And we get into the book of Judges where they were led by these prophet-like figures or judges that God would raise up that would rule the people. This is before the kingship. Then we get the monarchy. We get Saul, who was a bad king. We get the covenant with David. So we have another covenant there. And then we get Solomon and then the first temple. And this, this temple really does hit us over the face with how this is garden-like imagery. It's de decorated with pomegranates and palm trees. And it's just supposed to be this lush place where people get to meet with God. And this temple also, like the tabernacle, is filled with God's spirit. And people, people can't get in. People can't get in. They have to have a lot of sacrifices. They have to follow Levitical law to cleanse the temple from their sin, and then they're able to enter it and do their priestly duties. <clears throat> so then we have the divided kingdom. Um, we have the northern king kingdom, uh, Israel, right? They split after Solomon's reign uh, over a dispute with Solomon's son, right? So there's a northern kingdom, and then there's southern kingdom, there's Israel and Judah. Israel has basically no good kings and they eventually go to exile and we just don't really hear about them again. They're kind of like lost. They never return from exile. They go into the nations and they stay there. Uh, although there are you know, promises in scripture about eventually bringing them back. We don't get to see that in the Bible that we have. The Southern kingdom, Judah, they do go into exile and there's a, there's, they have the temple in the Southern kingdom. There's a dramatic scene in the book of Ezekiel, where we see God's spirit or God's presence leave the temple, go into exile with them, and it departs. And though the people will eventually return from exile, God never does. And they do build a second temple there. <clears throat> and but God's spirit never returns to the temple. So we're kind of we're kind of waiting for something. And even though they are back in the land, they, you know, they're still they're still being occupied by a foreign power, the Persians. So the Babylonians came in, initially exiled them. The Persians took over. They let them go back, but they were still uh, in control, under the control of the Persians. So all this is happening. This is, you know, hundreds of years of history. And then eventually, we don't necessarily hear about it much because it's not, not in the Bible. It's the book of Maccabees. This is the, the holiday that Hanukkah is based on. But we do have a brief period in time uh, where after the Persians, the Greeks were in control. And the Greeks, you know, they did, were not good uh, overseers of the Jews, right? They didn't let them, <clears throat> excuse me, worship in the temple. A whole bunch of other things, bad things happened that we don't really have a lot of time to go into. Uh, but they revolted against the Greeks. They kicked them out and they kind of had their own dynasty. They had their own kingdom for, you know, about a generation, maybe like a hundred years or so. Uh, eventually Rome would come in, Rome would take over, uh, and, you know, they, they kind of lost, they lost their kingdom sovereignty again. 
Uh, although, you know, King Herod is kind of from the New Testament, is related to this dynasty. So this is the story thus far. So why do I tell you guys all this? I tell you all of this because in the time of Paul and Saul and Jesus, there were a few problems, right? And the way that you would have understood it if you were Saul is that the reason that we don't have our own country, the reason that we don't have our own state of Israel is because we have not been true to the promises that we made to God in these covenants. So the, the big problem that we're facing is that, you know, we have we have all these, these things going against us. We have corrupt leaders, okay? The monarchy and the priesthood is a mess. Uh, we have idolatry among the people. Like we were talking about archaeology uh, last week. One interesting thing with archaeology that you find is that you can always tell an Israelite site from a surrounding, you know, tribe or, or city or people group because of the pig bones, right? So if it's an archaeological site from Israel, right, there usually is no pig bones, no pig bones at all. But if it's another site, like a Canaanite site or another people group in the area, you know, they, they eat whatever they want. There are pig bones there. But in terms of idols that we find in different archaeological sites, there's no difference, so you really can't tell just like by looking at the idols that are found in these dig sites between the Israelites and the surrounding nations. So there was a lot of idolatry amongst the people and the Bible backs this up, right? So this is kind of where we come in. So now we're going to be talking, getting into my Paul. Here we go. So we're about to meet the rabbi. About to meet. Okay, so three sources that we have for Paul. So we have three sources basically for Paul. We have Luke Acts, which is a two part work, right? And the important thing to remember is when we go into Acts is that it's not exactly history, it's a historical narrative, like a gospel. Uh, but both of it, Luke and Acts, are like a two part volume. Uh, you know, I almost wish that they were together in our Bibles when we read them. Because they really are, they really are meant to be read. Like you finish up with Luke, and then you go right into Acts. Uh, here we hear of Saul's origin story, right? We we see a lot, lots of interesting things in uh, Luke and Acts. It seems like the Pharisees almost have a redemption arc uh, in this. You know, Paul being a Pharisee, uh, and some Pharisees, uh, you know, following along with him. We see a lot of talk of kingdom and resurrection. And we get sort of an ending, depending on uh, your definition of an ending. So that's kind of what we learn about there. So <clears throat> as an example of why this isn't exactly history, I thought this was fun to go through when we talk about Luke Acts, is even like Paul's origin story, it's very, very interesting. Like his name uh, being compared to the first king of Israel, uh, you know, one of the kings that went really, really wrong, and then it would eventually lead to exile. Uh, we first see Paul with the people's coats approving of the stoning of Stephen, right? So he's showing lots of zeal. But if you think about his namesake, King Saul, right, what did he do? He hid among the baggage when he was going to be proclaimed king because he was showing, you know, a lack of zeal. So there was something there with Paul, right? Paul. Paul Saul, who we're talking about, you know, it gets a little confusing. Uh, 
he showed lots of zeal in the, in the stoning of Stephen, while King Saul showed a, a severe lack of zeal. He didn't want to step up and be who God wanted him to be. King Saul showed mercy and did not follow through God's commands, and so was rejected as king. So if you think of the stories of 1 Samuel 13 and 15, uh, the famous lines from the prophet Samuel, what is this bleeding of sheep? In my ears, he, you know, failed to fulfill uh, God's commands there to, you know, eradicate uh, the king and all the spoils of a war. He kept some stuff. Uh, Saul, um, you know, who'd come, become the apostle Paul, uh, will show no mercy. He shows no mercy and follows God's commandments to the letter as he understood it. Uh, if you think about when Saul, Paul was struck blind right after his encounter with Jesus, he was healed and then he escaped through an opening in the wall and went on to preach the Gentiles. Now that phrase opening in the wall, it's very like, it's very strange, right? Cause you could just use the word window. You could just say, okay, you know, Paul went through a window, right? But it says opening in a wall. And so that should remind you, that should throw you back to King Zedekiah, who was the last King of Judah, who tried to escape through an opening in the wall, was blinded and then led into exile, led into the nations. So when Zedekiah went to the nations, he went into the nations blind, while Paul was healed and sent into the nations to preach. Right. So again, uh, Paul from the book of Acts, we find out, and from his letters, that he was a Pharisee, <clears throat> preached a lot about kingdom and resurrection. Uh, and the ending, you know, at least that we get in Acts, is Paul in peace with both Rome and Jews. So the last chapter is kind of just Paul hanging out in his, you know, he, in his rooms, he is under arrest waiting to see Caesar, uh, but he's there, he's at peace, which I always find, you know, it's very interesting ending than the ending we choose to remember a lot of times by, you know, focusing on what we know from church tradition that he was martyred. So according to the book of Acts, the ending is one of peace between Rome and the Jews. So he's in Rome under house arrest, and he's able to teach freely all the people who want to come and listen to him. In terms of historical accuracy, the most historically accurate source that we have really comes from Paul's letters himself. Again, like we talked about last week, they are the earliest Christian writings. Uh, even the disputed letters as a whole, they still contain what is thought to be the earliest Christian writings. The Gospels and the writings of the Church Fathers would come much, much later. So N.T. Wright likes to point out, uh, hopefully you guys did the reading, but even if you didn't, I'm going to tell you about N.T. Wright. He points... Sorry, my Alexa just thought I was talking to her. So N.T. Wright uh, points out that there's a little bit of discrepancy between the book of Acts and the book of Galatians, right? So in the book of Acts, it seems to, it seems to imply that Paul went right away to Jerusalem. He went to Damascus, and then he went to Jerusalem. Uh, but the book of Galatians seems to tell a different story. And we're going to look at this in a little bit during our discussion. Uh, but in the book of, in the letter to the Galatians, you know, Paul seems to make it very clear. I did not go to Jerusalem right away. He did not go there right away. And if we, you know, compare the footnotes, it looks like between, you know, one sentence in Acts and another sentence in, of Acts, there's about a 14 year gap 
according to what Paul was saying in Galatians. So this is typical if someone is writing a gospel or a historical narrative or really any biography, really, uh, you have to kind of pick and choose what you want, uh, details you want to include. Uh, but when in terms of stuff like that, Paul's all own writings are definitely uh, more historical, historically reliable. And the third is the church father's tradition. We're not really going to talk much about that. <clears throat> Just want you guys all to be aware. All right. So some more highlights from Paul or Rabbi Shaul. Roman citizen, born in Tarsus, tent maker, which I, I find to be, you know, funny. I don't know if there's a connection there, but tents, tabernacle, tent of meeting. He's almost in the temple business. If you think about it, uh, business of building temples, uh, which is, you know, basically how he lived his life, right? Uh, Pharisee, raised in Jerusalem and studied under Gamaliel, who is teacher. Uh, and it almost makes you wonder if there was some type of disagreement between uh, Saul and his teacher. Because, you know, Acts does mention uh, Gamaliel in Acts 5.33, where he basically... Uh, the leaders in Jerusalem and are trying to figure out what to do with these people who are, you know, saying this stuff that Jesus came back from the dead and uh, spreading the gospel and all that fun stuff. And uh, they want to put them to death, but he counsels restraint saying that we have to be careful. We don't know. They could have been, they could have been spoken to by God or by an angel. You don't want to get yourself into a situation where you're fighting God. If you just leave them alone, uh, if it's not from God, it will end. And then, in Acts 9, right, Paul's still breathing out murderous curses. And then you skip through to Acts 22, verses 1 through 3, and, and Paul's giving one of his speeches uh, to, to one of the people in power that he's speaking to, and he mentions Gamaliel. And, he, you know, he says that he was his student. So it almost makes you wonder if, you know, the Bible is leaving these, leaving these little breadcrumbs for us to go back and go, oh, wait a minute, I've heard about this person before. Uh, so there seemed to be at least a narrative that, Acts is portraying that there was some type of disagreement between Paul and his teacher. Now, I think the key to understanding Paul and kind of connecting what we were doing before with giving you guys that 30,000 foot view of the whole story is what N.T. Wright refers to as zeal, being very zealous. And this is a, this is a concept that Paul will bring up again and again, uh, and if you go to Numbers 25, we'll slow down here and get to Numbers 25. So if you have a Bible, you can follow along. The Numbers 25. It's the story of Phineas. <clears throat> so to summarize... Uh, they got into a lot of trouble. We'll start in verse one. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began in, to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. 
Then an Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear through both of them, though the, through the Israelite and into the woman's body. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped, but those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. So this is kind of a key story to understanding Paul's mindset. Paul was always very zealous for the Lord. He was zealous before he met Jesus, and he was zealous after he met Jesus. And the key here is kind of just putting Paul into his own context of understanding that, that what Paul was doing and persecuting you know, Christians or followers of Jesus was completely in line uh, with you know, what his worldview was. Because if you remember back to what we were talking before when we took the, the 30,000 foot view of the whole story, uh, Israel didn't have its own kingdom. Is, the promises to Israel had not yet been fulfilled because they had failed to take seriously God's laws. And uh, you know there was idolatry amongst them and they had co corrupt leadership. So a story like this of Phineas showing great amount of zeal, right? For God and for God's name uh, would have been one of those touchstone stories that would have, they would have gone to, that they would have had in their minds to say, this is, you know, why we do what we do. This is why it's important to make sure that we take care of things like, you know, followers of Jesus who are spreading lies, you know, about this man who, who was killed, Jesus. Uh, so zeal in Torah or in Tanakh can be restorative. You know, it, there's, there's a place for restorative justice, uh, even restorative violence um, that turns away God's anger. So you can see in the young Paul that this must have been something that was, you know, heavy on his mind and something that he really took very, very seriously. Okay. So then our man Paul meets Jesus, right? Or Saul, Rabbi Shaul. I keep switching. Uh, he meets Jesus and everything changes. We have the various accounts in the book of Acts and different times Paul, you know, says what happened to him. We have Paul's own account in his letters. Uh, you know, N.T. Wright in his book makes a, a really interesting point of some of the scriptures that Paul can have been having on his mind. Uh, if you remember at the stoning of Stephen, right, this kind of happens right before Paul's conversion. Uh, he talks about how he sees heaven open and, you know, Jesus standing and sitting at the right hand of God. And so N.T. Wright argues that it's possible that Paul, while he was walking, would have had these things in his mind because they're connected narratively. Uh, at the very least, we can expect that we as careful readers, and if we have the whole story in our brains, we're tracking with this as well. We're thinking about Daniel about the son of man, the lamb that kind of came up on the cloud, right? Uh, we're thinking about Ezekiel, the throne of God, and the human figure on the throne. Uh, and, you know, N.T. Wright wonders if maybe at this point, you know, those two images in Paul's mind became one. And, you know, he saw Jesus. He realized that Jesus was the one standing at the right hand of God like the lamb. Jesus was the one sitting on the, on the throne, 
Uh, but whatever happened, we know that this encounter with Jesus changed changed a lot of things for Paul. It made him understand the story a little bit different. And so, you know, there's this whole main plot, Genesis 1 through 11, that we kind of left off, right? And then we have the story of Israel. But eventually, what if that connected? And instead of Rome being the big enemy, maybe the enemy was death itself. Maybe Jesus, as disarming the powers, defeated the power, the power of death, right? And Jesus at the top of this, you know, Jesus descri- described in the Gospels as having God's spirit, described almost like a mobile temple. Jesus is the architect and the founder of the new covenant, right? So all of this leading to Jesus, it flipped Paul's world where he still had that same zeal, but he was like, maybe I understood all of this different. I, I misunderstood what God was doing with all this. And really, once he met Jesus, it, he saw how it all came to Jesus. Okay, so we're going to have a quick discussion. <clears throat> so as N.T. Wright points out, Paul claims not to have gone immediately to Jerusalem, while Luke seems to think that Paul did go right away to Jerusalem. Sorry, I think I read that wrong. Uh, so, yes, well, in the book of Acts, it seems like they thought they went right to Jerusalem. All right, let's look at it. Look at, let's look at Galatians. Let's go to Acts first, actually. Acts 9. So you can, guys can kind of see it. You know, I flew through a bunch of stuff. Acts 9, verse 25. Let's back up to verse 23. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. So this is the scripture I was talking about before. It's an interesting turn of phrase, opening of the wall, calling us back to Second Kings. 26, when he came to Jerusalem, so it's kind of like they lowered him through the gate and all of a sudden he's in Jerusalem. He tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And then you keep the finger there, go over to Galatians, verse 11, chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preach is not something that I'm, that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age. and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before what I was. But I went immediately to Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Later, I went to Syria and Sicilia. I was personally unknown to the churches of, of Judea 
that are in Christ. They only heard a report that the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith and he want, that he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of this. Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. So stacking these scriptures together, it seems like there's somewhat of a discrepancy. So I wanted to just touch base with you guys. Uh, which one do you think is correct? And how does that change the way you read these texts? Do you see this as a problem or as an opportunity? I'd love to hear from you guys. If you, if when you see stuff like this in the Bible, do you see it as a problem, opportunity? Why or why not? I mean, I see. I mean, I see it as an opportunity. I think if, if we were having this conversation three or four years ago, right. um, I might have had to figure out what you know. Why is there a discrepancy, or how did I miss this type of thing? But, uh, uh, now I, I look at it and I see the, the, the details sometimes um, it opens up so much. Uh, so I look at it as an opportunity to see something I didn't see before or connect some dots I didn't know were connected. Uh, mm-hmm. There's always a, a bigger picture uh, going on. So, yeah, that's how I look at it. It's cool. Yeah, it makes it almost more rich. Yeah. You know, there's, there's more things to uh, puzzle out and wonder why maybe some things were left out or why things are told different. Anyone else? Yeah, um, I, I see it as an opportunity. Um, cool. When you read these, uh, when you, it doesn't specifically say in Acts, um, he went direct, like he was there the next day. On January sure. 1st, he was here, and on January <laughs> 2nd, he was over there. That, it, he doesn't say that. So uh, I, don't, I don't really see it as much of a... Um, conflicting reports really it's just one seemed to omit you know a space of, of time a pretty big space of time, but still yes yeah cool if i could just i think the thing is is going off of what dave said is you don't see it as a problem i think it's just so interesting how sometimes our minds fill in the blanks when, yeah. and then realize oh i didn't realize that little detail i guess i must have just assumed this that gets really exciting, but then it changes everything because I, I'm, I'm, I, I created this puzzle based on pieces that maybe I had something wrong with. So then I have to stop and reevaluate the whole thing. Yeah. That, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I, I actually never had a problem with this because I always felt like, you know, Galatians just kind of filled in the blanks. There you go. He had spent that time. Mm-hmm. That was the Lord, and it just filled in the, the time frame there. So, but you know, to me, that's an opportunity. Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's an opportunity too. And I, I love the way you know these texts have been constructed, not necessarily uh, by what I think a, a text should be constructed, uh, but the way that they have been constructed, you know, it, it's for a reason. Right. Luke had a definite, you know, reason why he arranged things and he admitted others. And, uh, you know, it is curious, though, in Galatians, because Paul seems like really insistent. (laughs) I I love that, you know, that, you know, like some of you guys have said, yeah, he just admitted, you know, he doesn't say necessarily, okay, this happened here, this happened here. Acts, to me, definitely gives the impression of like Paul is all over the place. Like Paul's going here, Paul's going there. Uh, But it's, it's true. 
he doesn't necessarily, you know, give us a play by play, but for whatever reason, Paul is very much like, he's really like upset that anybody would say anything different. Like I didn't talk to nobody. I got, I got all this stuff from Jesus Mm. and that's that. Um, I think what's interesting too is that opened up for me when I first understood that, that Mm. the account in Acts, I want to say 15 with the Jerusalem council Mm-hmm. Is not the same act. It's not the same conversation that Paul's talking about in mm-hmm. Galatians when he went to Jerusalem. And I think for me, that's where I was talking about like assumptions. I thought like when I used to read it, I used to think, oh, when Paul is talking about going up, it's the same thing that happened in Acts 15. And I don't think that that's what I think it's two different times. Interesting. Um, so I think that's one of the things that opened up for me. Yeah. It could be, right? could be two different times. Um, I also like, too, this, this is something that was eye-opening for me, too. N.T. Wright talks about this in his book as well. Uh, you can go to any, you know, decent Bible, and you go to the back, and you'll get a whole bunch of maps kind of sketching out, like, Paul's missionary journeys. And it, when you see a map, the impression you get is that, oh, okay, yeah, I, I, can, see, I can see all this stuff, but these lines that are easy to trace or easy to look at and see like they're, they're very, very controversial. You know, people love to argue about, no, no, Paul went here, Paul went there. This is how many missionary trips he went on, you know, and it's, it's, I think to me, the opportunity is it's once again, an example to me that here it is the Bible is caring about different things than I, I would necessarily care about. Like, you know, like instead of giving me Paul's travel itinerary, you know, it's dealing with, something else so good stuff yeah. and paul i mean when when he says um hold on it says uh, uh after three years and one just i saw no i assure you before god that what i am writing to you is no lie yeah i mean that's pretty emphatic i mean that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah he really means what he's trying what he's saying there so yeah and what i love about that too is that it makes me wonder what, what what was the environment that a statement like that came out? Like were yeah. people talking smack about Paul? Like, no, man, you got this from, from Peter or, you know, someone else. And he's like, no, no, I didn't. This is no yeah. lie. <laughs> it's like somebody was questioning him along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in another context, you'd almost be suspicious if somebody was like, I am telling you the truth, like, a, you know, <laughs> when your kid does something that, you know, they weren't supposed to. You know, I'm yeah, sure yeah. you hear that, those <laughs> of you guys that are, are parents. So cool. Awesome. All right, so let's dive back in. Uh, we're going to kind of look more specifically at what are the letters of Paul. We're going to look at uh, Philemon today <clears throat> to kind of give us an idea of what's going on. So what are the letters of Paul? Here's, here's some things to keep in mind, some important things to keep in mind. Uh, when dealing with the letters of Paul. These are documents of ancient history, right? They were written in the mid to first century. So as all documents of ancient history, you have to, you know, you have to understand how to treat them. This isn't something that was written yesterday. This isn't something that was written, um, you know, with today's problems in mind. It has own context and it's had its own set of problems, Uh, The Roman Empire was growing, right? 
if uh, you see the picture we have on the side, that's actually called the Titus Arch. And it was to commemorate uh, the destruction of the temple that would happen about 20, 30 years later in 70 AD or CE. Uh, and you can kind of see some of the articles of the temple being carried out. I have a bigger picture of it that I can show you guys right here. If you want to kind of get an idea of like, you know, these were historical times that it's hard for us necessarily to wrap our heads around. So, you know, you see the menorah here being carried out. <clears throat> you see some other articles from the temple being carried out. They were actually displayed in a museum uh, for the public to go and see, uh, according to historical accounts. So it's kind of cool that, you know, these things, that we have some record of these things. So the Roman Empire was growing, right? Rome, who was once an ally of the nation of Israel, had come in and taken them over, uh, even though, you know, they still had the Hasmonean dynasty uh, that Herod was a part of and all that fun stuff. The original audience of these letters were probably not literate. They probably uh, couldn't read, right, or write uh, the majority. Uh, it wasn't something back then that everyone could do. So the idea of, you know, someone sitting alone with one of the letters of Paul and kind of pouring it over themselves, that wouldn't happen to, to many, 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 many years later. Uh, these are things that would have been read uh, in a public setting. Uh, even if you were reading it yourself, you probably were reading it out loud for others who were there. Uh, and it was written in common Greek. So it was written in common Greek from the book of Acts. It seems that, you know, Paul was very uh, fluent in many other languages, including Hebrew. Uh, but, you know, all of his letters were written in the common Greek, which is different than like the classical Greek that would have been more for the educated or the elite. This was written in common Greek. And here's our Titus Arch again. I just think that's so cool that we can kind of see a moment in history like that. So four things to keep in mind. Um, when we're looking at these letters, we have to remember that these are records of struggle and debate over social, political, ethical, ethnic, and theological issues, issues of the times. So we have to remember that when we go in that, you know, these are different than if Paul was writing a gospel. So if Paul was writing a gospel, right, uh, it would have looked more like what we have in one of the four Gospels. There would have been some type of narrative. There would have some, been some type of a, appealing to eyewitness reports. There would have been a more of a story arc. Uh, but these are records of conversations, conversations that we only really have one side of. Um, the big questions in the letters of Paul were also questions of power. Who was in charge? Right. If you looked at the world, it looked like, well, Caesar was in charge. It looked like Rome was in charge. Uh, but the claim that Christians were making, right, that were made, it's made in the New Testament is that, no, in fact, God's in charge. And Jesus has had ultimate victory over the nations, over the worlds, over the powers and, uh, and over death. But, you know, people still died. People still got sick. So how do you square that all away? Paul's letters address those questions of power. Again, dealing with first century issues, 
So, and when dealing with first century issues, uh, I've heard it said before, and I wanted to share this with you guys, that dealing with Paul's letters, you have to practice what's called a disciplined intimacy, right? These words are engaging. They speak into us, right? They're meant to be, to be read intimately and very, very carefully, but we also need to be disciplined and remind ourselves what it is that we're reading. We're reading someone else's mail, someone from a different time that's different than ours. They're still, they still speak to us and they still hold a lot of value as they have you know, for literally thousands of years at this point. Uh, like we talked about last week, the Bible being one of the most studied and talked about books in human history, uh, the New Testament is no different. Okay, so we are going to read and then we're going to discuss Philemon. And as we read it together, we want to think in our we want to think who is writing to whom because we're going to talk about it. What words are unusual, powerful, or intriguing to you? What details stand out to you? What do you think the letter is saying in your own words? So I want you to imagine just for a second so we can think about this. Think about this letter uh, critically or intelligently is probably a better better way to say critically. Uh, we want to think about, imagine we just found this letter in some library somewhere. We didn't find this in our Bible. What would we think about this letter, right? What, what, would, we, what would we come to it? We want to give ourselves permission just to think about this. We want to think about who is it, who is ranked to whom? What words are unusual, powerful, intriguing to you? What details stand out to you? What do you think the letter is saying in your own words? So we're going to do that now. So, and I think this is also a good practice. So whenever doing something on Paul, you know, if you guys ever do this in your own uh, communities, your own places, your own spaces, uh, Philemon is a great letter to start with just to introduce the people to Paul because you can read it in, in like a few, I don't even know if it's going to take us a, a whole minute to read this. And it's a good way of getting a sense of him and, uh, you know, all that fun stuff, just the way he structures letters. Okay, so <clears throat> I'm going to read this. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. To Aphia, our sister. To Archippus, our fellow soldier. And to the church or ecclesia that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord, Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him 
who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dear to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing, and one thing more. Prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you and answer to your prayers. Ephraim, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristocrus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. All right. So let's talk about it. What can we what can we find out from this? Who is writing to who? It's like uh, Paul is writing to Philemon. Mm-hmm. Yep. <clears throat> Go ahead. I said, and Timothy is writing too. Yep, Timothy and Paul, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Who else is uh, he writing to besides Phil, uh, Philemon? Thea. Mm-hmm. And Archippus. There you go. Called him a fellow soldier in the house church. Yep. Yeah. Why the distinction between uh, friend and fellow worker and fellow and soldier? It's interesting, right? Interesting question. What do you think it is? Um, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's like a nickname. <clears throat> you know, or something. Cool. So what words are unusual, powerful, or intriguing to you? What, what kind of like leaps out on a page? Like, oh, that, that's strange. You just mentioned soldier, so I'll hold him that one. Um, okay. There you go. Uh, uh, he calls, um, calls the onimus, uh, uh no longer a slave to mm. you. <clears throat> no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. Mm. Refers to Onimus that way. Okay. Uh, you asked if I found this in a library, and then I would. I, mean, I don't know if I, I'm in the, the NIV, that's probably the newer one, but it talks about that your partnership with us in the faith. And I think if I just found this randomly, I'd be like, what partnership do they have here? Um, you know, if it's not in the Bible, you know what I mean? 
Hmm. Okay. Cool. Anyone else? It's just some something that jumps out at you. Did you say that if I had no knowledge of uh, of the Bible at all, because like if I knew who Jesus Christ is? Um. Yeah. I was just. I was just saying. Like you know. Let, let Let's try and read this. Like um. Just to give us the freedom of saying, okay, what what's strange to me? Like so, for instance, maybe there's some things that because of your religious tradition are no longer strange, like, you know, but okay. might actually be strange. Prisoner, <clears throat> prisoner of Christ, prisoner. Of... Yeah. So one thing that jumps out at me, oh, he's when I read this. Um, but I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced, you know, which is, is kind of like funny to me that would, he would say that. Right. Yeah. It sounds like it's like double entendre. But I, yeah. I, and don't forget that you do owe me. Yeah. <laughs> you owe me your very self. You don't owe me much, right? Yeah. But I think what's interesting yeah. too is like if I never heard of this before, I'd also kind of be like, why is he saying that I could be bold? And yeah. Bold? Yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like who is this guy that he could order somebody? You know what I mean? But he's choosing not to. Yeah. It does sound very strong. If you have a certain perspective of leadership, it does sound like, oh, he's just being slick. He's just trying to scare him, but actually make him make him uh you know, obey without really threatening him, but he's really threatening him, you know, like he's from Staten Island or something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, why that now? Why not Wyoming? <laughs> well, I, I find it, you know, here he's saying formerly he was useless to you, but now I'm sending him back better. He's, he's useful to me and would be to you. And I'm thinking, you know, who, who talks, you know, about someone like that? You know, here's someone that was good for nothing, and now he's good, and I'm going to send him back to you, but you better, you know, now, here's someone you better treat with some respect because I'm sending him back and you owe me. When he comes back and says, you owe me for this, honestly, you kind of you owe me your life. And so I'm sending him back. That kind of language, that does sound kind of Staten Island if you, you know, <laughs> talk about it. Yeah, and, and then I think the, the fact that he, he calls him, he says, I appeal to you uh, for my son. Yeah. Right, which is interesting. Like, how does someone become your son in prison? You know what I mean? Yeah. And as Dwight was saying that, it's so funny because Onesimus actually means useful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but then you're kind of wondering, okay, what is this really, you know, that's just very interesting talk, you know? Kind of like a, a play on his name. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. His name is useful. Cool. Yeah. So if you had to summarize the letter, what would you say the main point of the letter is? Why did Paul write this? Uh, it sounds like he's strong-arming uh, Philemon into accepting Onesimus <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, into uh, into his household, into his uh, uh, employment, or into his service. <clears throat> I think he's trying to. Uh, I mean, the way I and I know that the Bible, you know, like I already know this in a sense. But it, it does sound to me like, hey, this is like a runaway slave, and I want you to not only just forgive him, but really just like treat him as an equal, um, which is, you know what I mean? 
which is really crazy, like change his status. Hmm. Um, that's kind of how I get this. And then with kind of like the reminders that we were talking about before with the little double entendre, you know, you yeah. know remember, remember who you are, remember what we're about, remember who you are, remember why you do this. Um, and maybe even the fact that he's got some witnesses is kind of interesting too. It's like, hey, by the way, there's some people who know, know that I wrote this letter. <laughs> Just an FYI. He says, prepare a room for me. I may come stay with you. Yeah. 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 I'm going to go check on you. <laughs> Makes you wonder, right? It's, it's kind of interesting, the overall letters, just that I'm, you know, I want you to be the kind of person you need to be. I'm sending this guy back. You know, we need to love him the way you, you need to love him the way I love him, the way Jesus would love you. You know, bringing, that, bringing home the whole idea of here's someone that is, that deserves to be loved the way Jesus loves you. Hmm. So... I mean, that's that's the whole, I think, overall thought of the letter <clears throat> that you could be applied universally is here's someone that has been salvaged just like you have. You know, you may think he was useless because he was a runaway slave, but he has been redeemed just like you have and needs to be accepted the same as you were. Cool. If you, I don't know if that's going too far on the limb. No, no wrong answers. You know, if that's if that's how you would summarize it, that's great. That's good. We're, we're trying to give ourselves permission to just yeah. you know, look at it and just, you know, we uh we reserve the right to change our mind later if okay. other things come to us. So that's great, guys. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. <clears throat> so let's talk about something else. Let's talk about something called Prescripts. Okay, we're going to be dealing with authorship and audience. So a prescript, right, is is very simple. Uh, it's basically uh, so in the Roman education system, right? There, there were different levels. Uh, the highest level was rhetoric. That was like the third level. Uh, it does seem that Paul, at least the way he he writes and thinks, had some familiarity with rhetoric. You can go into uh, other discourses by trained speakers, trained thinkers, philosophers of the time. Uh, they, it's almost like, oh, wow, look, I found a, another letter of Paul in some places, kind of that logical flow of argument. Um, but reading and writing, okay, that was kind of like the second level. And, you know, if you, were, if you were wealthy, if you were from an elite family, you were definitely taught how to do it. You didn't necessarily write your own letters. Uh, but what you would often do is you, you would sign like the prescript. So you would address it or you would, you would close out the letter. Like you would do some type of greeting in your own hand. Uh, but the, a prescript uh, can tell us a lot about authorship and audience. So, you know, it can seem at first like, oh, wow, you guys, you're going to talk to me about email headers in, from the first century. That sounds super boring. Uh, it's actually really, really cool. And it's a really great exercise just to look at all the prescripts of Paul and just or even just some of them and just see, OK, what can what can we understand from this? What is this going to tell me about authorship and audience? So the basic forms of it 
are a superscripto, which would be the name of the sender, uh, adscripto, which would be the name of the addressee, and the salute saluto or the or the greeting right hello how's it going and then there would be a thanksgiving there'd be the main body of the letter and then there'd be the ending right and so this is something that it's just it's just common this is just the way letters were written um i might show it to you next week i'm not sure if we're going to cover it but you can even look at other letters that were that we found from the same time and they all kind of have the same type of structure um, there's the prescript, there's a Thanksgiving. And even if the body is kind of complaining about something or upset, right, all that stuff is still there. And then it, it ends. So <clears throat> let's do that. So let's look at some of the prescripts of Paul. So if you want to just take your Bible, you can go to the beginning of the new of Paul's letters. And we'll do that together. And we'll just we'll just see if we can learn some stuff. So you got to go to Romans. <clears throat> uh, useful useful exercise too is just to go to BibleGateway.com and kind of just if you put the scripture verses and you add a colon and you put them all in a list in the little search bar, you can print out uh, a single document. <clears throat> I'm actually gonna share it with you guys. Because I have mine on my screen. So I'm going to stop sharing that. I'm going to share my screen. Share screen. Window. There we go. Beautiful. So you guys should all be able to see that. We're good? Give me a thumbs up if you guys can see it. All right. Cool. So we'll go to Romans. We're not going to look at all of them. We're just going to look at a few just to get an idea. Uh, I do have this on a dock all out in one with the New American Standard Bible. I could send it to you guys individually if that's something that you guys want. Uh, but it's easy enough to make it on your own. So Romans 1, 1 through 7, it says, Paul, a bond servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ to all who are beloved of God in Rome called as saints or the holy ones, grace to you and peace from God, our father and Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to Corinthians Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sothenes, our brother, to the ecclesia of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. And then skip down to four. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace, which, grace of God which has given you in Christ Jesus that in everything you enrich in him and all speech and knowledge. So 2 Corinthians 1, 1 to 2, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. 
Let's skip Galatians, go to Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. To the holy ones who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Philippians, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord in Jesus Christ. We're going to skip to Philemon, which we just did. <laughs> That's the one I didn't put, so I'm just going to read it. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. To Aphia, our sister. To Archippus, our fellow soldier. And to the church that meets in your home. So those are the prescripts of Paul. <clears throat> so what can we learn from that? So the first thing we want to talk about is who is the author? So the traditional view is Paul alone writing at his desk. Even the cover of the book that we read, <clears throat> right, uh, that we're reading, Paul, a biography by N.T. Wright, it kind of, you know, it's a Rembrandt painting. It's very famous. It's kind of, you just kind of see Paul sitting in a room alone at his desk. But the prescripts kind of uh, communicate something else. We see different people kind of like poking their head around Paul's, sh Paul's shoulder. He has, he's writing more in a community, right? Instead of a writer in a room, think of the writer's room. That's actually from our podcast. So that's something that, you know, instead of just thinking someone like, you know, that you might write an email or you might write anything, you know, alone at your desk, you want it nice and quiet with your coffee and you're typing out whatever it is that you're writing. Uh, with Paul, it was much more of a community endeavor, you know, and he also would have had a scribe with him in many cases, uh, probably all of the cases um, where, you know, that would have been a professional writer who would have been helping him to, you know, put all this together. The second thing is audience. And I want to talk about that for a second. <clears throat> the traditional view uh, that we've had, right, is... Uh, churches, you know, ecclesia is typically translated as churches. Uh, this is a little bit problematic because if you think about it, uh, you know, there are no church buildings. Church buildings aren't really going to come around to 300 years later. Uh, there is no church infrastructure. There's no church governance. There's no, you know, formal organization uh, of these things. So when we translate it as church, it kind of maybe conjures images in your mind of what you think of as church, right? Maybe the church tradition that you go to, or if you're from more of a traditional type of church, like you're thinking like something like the Catholic church or, you know, something like the Eastern Orthodox, something, you know, big and grand with big buildings. Uh, Christian can also be pro problematic. Like you can think of it as a Christian community because, you know, Christianity was, was just beginning. So, the, you know, to call it a, a Christian community, again, can conjure things that, maybe, you know, doesn't really capture the full range of meaning. Uh, New, Te New Testament, you know, we find church primarily in the book of Acts and in Paul's letters. Although we do find it, you know, twice in the book of Matthew, it's not really something that's talked about a lot until we get to the book of Acts and we get to Paul's writings. <clears throat> so who is this audience? How should Ecclesia be translated. So we have a few, we have a few contenders, 
that I have them up on the screen here for all y'all to take a look at. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> excuse me. The first would be Quahal, which is maybe what they were trying to go for was like the Jewish word, which means occultic community. Maybe that's what they were trying to go for. Um, so that would be like the Essenes, you could think of them as a cultic community, the Pharisees, something like a highly religious, uh, organized, traditional body, right? Or you could think of the ecclesia can also be translated as voluntary association. It's people like a volunteer firefighter group, uh, a volunteer militia, a volunteer, you know, people who are going to go and, you know, clean a park, something like that. And then the other one, which is this is probably the most compelling for our purposes, is a politic or a civic assembly, right, which is not unique to Christianity in the ancient world. These people would meet together. They would drink. They would engage in worship. They would sing hymns. So you have to remember, we have to put ourselves into a first century mindset where gods and goddesses and those types of things were, were everywhere. So if you were an ecclesia, let's say, of tradesmen, Right, you probably had a patron god or goddess of your group, and when you guys all got together, you would worship that god or goddess or a combination of right. So, meet, drink, engage in worship, sing hymns, share funds, conversation about ethics, theology, philosophy, and practical matters. So, that is probably the most compelling. But I want to offer just a slight word of caution when we think of political civic assembly. Um, I want you to think about maybe like a group of like parliament from the United Kingdom. If you've ever watched one of their cabinet meetings, it's much different than like a meeting here in Congress or like in the Senate. Usually people are very civil. People wait their turn. They are called up to the mic. They yield their time to the rest of the, the committee, right? If they, if they end early, uh, these, you know, these po politic and civic assemblies were much, much more, um, how we say, it, lively. They engaged in lively discussion. People would present ideas. People would discuss ideas. There'd be there'd be speakers who were known in the group and debaters. And you know, and even talking about practical matters. Okay, so we have all this theology. We have all these ideas. How do we actually move forward in the world and put these things into practice? So they would you know, argue or debate is probably a better word. They would discuss these things, but these discussions would get very, very passionate. And, um, you know, this is probably the most compelling uh, vision of these early Christian communities would be, you know, these politic civic assemblies. They didn't just deal with matters in the church. They dealt with matters outside the church. How are we gonna live our lives in a way that, you know, based on everything we believe about Jesus, everything we believe, when we talked about that 30,000 view, right, of the whole story, uh, what, what does that mean about how we're going to live our lives, how we're going to do, you know, and I find it very interesting that these early Christian communities would eventually own that word and they would take it as their own. They would make that, that, that identity. And I think the question for us is, well, if that's, if that's true, then what does that mean for us? How do we look, you know, in comparison? Are we a group of people who are free to discuss ideas, that are free to get into debates with each other, really just wrestle with the scriptures and how we should 
live our lives. I just found that to be fascinating and, you know, a really cool thing to think about. <clears throat> so real quick, and then I think we'll end uh, our time together. Um, what do you guys think about these early church communities taking on the word ecclesia as their identity? Do you, do you agree that there was probably this politic civic assembly? Do you think it's something else? And what do you think that means for us today? Um, well, I find it really interesting that you just said that you shed um, some interesting light on it. I think um, I've always thought of it in a sense of, okay, there's a lot of um, Jewish <clears throat> culture where they already are uh, in the synagogue. Um, Paul is going to the synagogues uh, and he's you know, talking to people. But you do see hints of this um, uh, in the book of Acts, even in yep. Corinth. Um, or then, you know, like when people come and they're like, oh, great, it's Artemis of the Ephesians. Like they're really, they're really upset that Paul is disturbing, you know, what's going on in the city. Uh, and then you would, when you said that, it really clicked for me because I'm saying, well, that would be how you would include Gentiles into this new group in a sense. Uh, and I'm still, I still think I, I kind of thought like you did, especially if I'm thinking a letter of Paul is 20 years or so, 25 years after the resurrection, they mm-hmm. might already have some sort of a church. But um, with the whole Jewish Gentile thing and seeing how it's still like, it's really interesting because I almost got this vision of like, kind of like what we almost talk of, like, let's say like a little town council, you know, like you live in a small town mm-hmm. and you're having a town meeting. Um, but now you've got a town meeting where they're trying to figure out how do we run or live in our community with these guiding principles rather as we we kind of pull away and separate ourselves from a community in, in our culture and we're just a church and then we might send somebody into a community or some you know community council or whatever but we we're not the people typically making those decisions for the whole community um so i do find it very interesting and something i want to really think about especially because um it is so new, um, and, and it, it is a little different because there are some you know scholars who might think like places like Corinth may have had you know ten thousand members or whatever. So you start to think there might have to have been some sort of leadership or structure in a sense of the way that we kind of do it now. Um, right. But like I do really like that. I think I really have to throw that into the mix as a real possibility because ecclesia it is an assembly. Uh, I forget when that word kind of became church and kind of became official, but Mm -hmm. that's, you know, but really it's always been the way really, you know, the way and the assembly has really been the the, the way that those words have been used. So I like it. Like I really want to think about that because it changes. And also, because in our church, like in our church, in churches, we don't get to sit there and debate things once they get past a certain line of what's believed or accepted doctrine. So we don't get to have healthy discussions. We don't get to talk. It's always about, oh, that, 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 that's the, they're in the them group and this is the us group. But if we as a group, you know, could actually talk about things, you know, then they're probably going to get lively. Hey, what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? And have two people that can be respected who have very strong, really different opinions about something. That's really beautiful to think how you can bring unity to that. And then you, so that's one thing. And then the fact that you, 
have more of the social responsibility. I like that. I really like that. And it sounds to me like it's something more connected and to, to, to actually changing the world uh, and about making the world a better place and like and, and making a difference rather than this kind of escapism of the 20th century or 19th century that we kind of have where it's just like, how do I build a boat like Noah and get a bunch of people in it? Um, it's more engaging. So I like it. I'm really, really, I, I like that. It shed some good light for me. I want to think about that more. Yeah, it is interesting. Sometimes the questions that, um, you know, we, we can track down, like, you know, you talked about the ark and, you know, I, I even heard people like they've tried to figure out, well, how did, how did all the animals go to the bathroom? How did that work? You know, and you can go to like, I think the ark museum and like, they'll, they'll actually explain that to you about how, you know, that all worked and everything. And, you know, like, you know, oh, there was actually like a, a big thing surrounding our planet of water. And that's where the flood comes from, you know, like kind of maybe missing the point of some of these stories and, and what they're actually trying to communicate. You know, so I think that's, that's really, that's cool, man. Thank you for that. Anyone else? Well, I, one thing that I, that I thought about is um, I've always read that as to the church to, you know, and, and now that I'm actually thinking about it, uh, it couldn't have been a church because they were all Jewish. They all belong to, <laughs> to temple or not, it wasn't temple boat back then. Right. Uh, but it was, it, it was there. They already had a, a religion. They already had uh, a place to go worship. And so for me, when I go to church, we're going, we're going to go worship. So they weren't meeting together to worship. They had some other place to do that because in, in their eyes, they weren't converting to Christianity. They were, they were just continuing their, their story yep so this group it, it it's interesting to think oh what, what is this subgroup what is this uh uh group of people who've gotten together and uh and are discussing these things uh jesus really and and what he means to the story yeah yeah that's really cool man uh i appreciate that you know, because it, it is true. I think it's easy. That's why I, I do feel like sometimes I wish the Bible would leave some words untranslated. Like, because the word is just, it, it's like something like ecclesia. That, that's good. <laughs> you know, it kind of like at least creates a little bit of strangeness. So you can understand that like when you read the word church, you, you shouldn't be thinking of a building or an organization or like, you know, like a, like a nonprofit company. You should be thinking of, you know, like, some, something more along the line of this, like a political, social organization, like an assembly. That's really cool. So we are about a minute out wrapping up. So just to confirm with you guys, next we're going to be reading chapters five through nine in Paul, a biography. Uh, next week will be our final intro to Paul. Uh, I don't think we're going to need the entire time to do it, although although we'll, we'll see. Things do tend to take uh, longer than uh, I think they are when I, when I do these talks and these classes. Um, so we'll see. We might be able to get a little bit into Ephesians next week, uh, which is where we're going to be spending the most of our time. But next week we'll be uh, doing our second and final intro to Paul, and then we're going to be going to Ephesians. And... Uh, <clears throat> 
If you haven't gotten your books already, get your books. And we'll be reading chapters five through nine. I'm listening to mine on my library app. And uh, it's been really great kind of rereading these books for me. Uh, they're just awesome books and I get more out of it every time. Uh, you, again, anyone listening out there, please you know, consider supporting us again on Patreon. We really appreciate your support. And guys, thank you all so much for coming and being on this uh, StreamYard classroom with me live. Please give yourselves a round of applause. I really appreciate all of you. You guys are the man, the myth, the legends. And uh, look forward to seeing you guys uh, next time. Yes, and as always, adios muchachos. And muchachos.